shooting broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Welcome to the show. This is a great one. I am very excited about this because I have been strangely fascinated, intrigued, uh, whatever you want to say, about the concept of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch ever since I heard about it in roughly 2012, kind of guesstimating there. Obviously, I can't give you an exact date and time that this concept kind of came into my life, but I have been very curious about it because this this idea that there is a a pile of garbage floating in the Pacific Ocean that is three times the size of the state of Texas. And Texas, you're no slouch, you know that, you're a pretty big state. Three times that, just floating out there. It just kind of blew my mind that it was it was out there, we didn't know what to do about it, it's growing every day. And to me, this represents the pinnacle of human apathy and disinterest, not only in the extremely important environment of the ocean, but for the entire planetary biome as a whole. And if you are aware of this phenomenon, you should be doing something about it. And there is a man doing something about it. As a matter of fact, it's the same man who discovered, who made this incredible discovery. And it turns out that he lives right down the street from me. So I was able to sit down. He's right in front of me, sitting down, talking to the one, the only, the man, Captain Charles Moore. Captain, thank you so much for being on the program today. So let me ask you, obviously, the, the important questions first. Now, you're an official captain and I believe your full title is Captain Charles Moore, U.S. Merchant Marine Officer, Master of Steam Motor and Sail Vessels of not more than 100 gross tons. Can we shorten that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, uh, just say that I'm uh, Captain Charles Moore. I'm uh, a skipper of the oceanographic research vessel Algita and founder of Algolita Marine Research and Education. That's more words. That's also, Long Beach Organic. I uh, found it at the same time, a group that turns vacant lots into organic gardens. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, that's why I bet you can see all the organic farming going on here. Yeah, we had um, uh, we had a conversation about whether or not the berries out here were mulberries, and one of the guys on the Algita took a bite of one and said, yeah, it's probably a mulberry. Yeah, well, so. I probably got the r wrong one because they have to be black to be really good and sweet and if they're red they're not ready yeah that's what i told them i said yeah. that uh so now do you like is it is it i'm going to shorten it even a little bit more can we say cap do you like captain do you like cap like captain america or do you like captain like captain crunch uh my uh uh gmail uh, uh address is captain more C-A-P-N-M-O-O-R-E at gmail.com. So, yeah, you can call me Captain. Captain, like Captain Crunch. So that's yeah. you're pretty similar to that. One of the most impressive, I think you started off your book with this quote. Uh, this is a pretty impressive quote, and I think it kind of sums up what you do. Uh, you said, I am skeptical, untrusting, especially of governments, and I'm convinced people will do what is in their best interest, no matter the cost, and still, I had no idea that we had made it a national practice to dump so much human refuse into the ocean now and throughout human history. Uh, it's pretty impressive for what you do because you are kind of known as the uh, discoverer, the Christopher Columbus of, of garbage patch discovery. Um, and so how did that quote kind of come about? Well, uh, there's, a, there's a great book out, uh, The Ocean Can uh, Absorb All Evils, and it's a, from ancient Roman times. The idea was that you purified, you removed evil by washing off the evil, no matter what it might be, the impurity with ocean water. And mm. the concept is that the ocean is so limitless and, and the water is so pure that it, you can you can purify anything in the ocean. The ocean uh, strips things clean. And, hmm. and in that sense, uh, the, the, uh, the evils of the land have been let to the ocean in order uh, for them to disappear, to be gotten rid of. And so, yes, they, uh, 
The concept is ancient, uh, that the ocean can absorb all evils, and that uh, the um, modern evil of uh, plastic pollution uh, has finally reached the limit of the ocean's ability to absorb all evils. And so it's turned out that uh, the evil perpetuated by our civilization uh, has come to the point where now, rather than being something that, you know, uh, we breathe every day, carbon dioxide, how can we be mad at carbon dioxide? It's essential to life. It's part of the plants breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. It's hard to get people to see carbon as the enemy. As a matter of fact, it may not be the enemy. It's just the way we use it. But plastic there's no controversy. This, this trash is evil. It's, it's ugly. It's bad. It's sickening. And there's no good coming from having it invading the biosphere. The, the idea that somehow there's a, a beneficial effect from trash becoming part of our environment, part of the biosphere... There is no such beneficial effect. No one is even claiming that. Not even in the most rabid industry supporter doesn't claim that trash is good for the environment. Right. Well, and it's and I think we're going to get to this in a second. But you know, plastic is you know a unique point in human history, which is how this garbage patch. I mean, it's known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. You don't like that name, um, but you are the man who discovered it, uh, which is an incredibly important discovery because you kind of set in motion a chain of events that is still being looked at today. Uh, but what would you call it if not the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Well, it's the accumulation zone. It's the detritus of civilization that floats on the ocean uh, has... Uh, been accumulated there by currents which are ancient, uh, prehistoric currents. Uh, the ocean is enormous, and the Pacific Ocean is the greatest of all the oceans. And the North Pacific, uh, the the volume of it is the is, is just absolutely phenomenal. It's just incomprehensible to the average person just how big it is. But it turns out that it has certain characteristics that make it almost like a bathtub in the sense that. If you bounce water off the edges, uh, you get a calm spot in the middle. And uh, maybe, I don't know if you've ever done it, but sometimes when the tub, you know, you're soaking in the tub and the water's cold, you turn on the hot and you start spinning it around. Uh, that spinning motion uh, leaves the center calm and, you know, uh, brings water all around the edges uh, toward the center. So th that concept, this idea that there's this gyre, this vortex. I mean, uh, there uh, people have written about uh, descent into the maelstrom. Uh, this is not exactly a maelstrom in that sense. It's not like this giant upside-down funnel. It's more like uh, just the ability of the currents to capture debris from the continents and bring them into a resting place near the center. Now, when you say, uh, you say gyre? Gyre. Gyre. Yeah. What exactly is that? Well, a gyre is a circular current, uh, and most currents in the open ocean are rotary currents. They're circular in nature. And there's just a giant one that has about a six-year period of rotation that is part of the North Pacific. And the North Pacific gyre is one of the five major high-pressure gyres. Uh, they're caused by high-pressure atmospheric systems, uh, which are basically mountains of air that have been heated at the equator. And uh, that mountain of air, as it reaches the upper atmosphere, cools and begins to descend in the northern hemisphere in a clockwise rotation. So uh, you have this clockwise descending current of air sweeping the ocean in a clockwise uh, direction. As I say, it's sort of scouring the continents and bringing the debris into the center. So the gyre is the ocean's response to the uh, circular descent of atmosphere under a high-pressure system. So in layman's terms, it's essentially like in a toilet bowl when it spins around into the middle, it's collecting all the crap into that particular section of the ocean, essentially, right? Yeah, I've called it a toilet that doesn't flush. <laughs> right, yeah, it's stopped up. Um, you know, it's it's... So 
this is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And I got to tell you, one of the things that I th went into this believing was that, you know, I kind of think of you as a modern day Christopher Columbus of the Continental Crap Cluster, a.k.a. Garbage Island. And I say that because I thought of this as a literal island of garbage that you could walk upon that was, you know, three times the state of Texas, Texas and all those stats. But it's not really like that. That's not exactly the consistency. It's more like soup or stew. Um, which, which I just found fascinating and almost more destructive because it's spread out more. Now, let's walk back to 1997, August 8th, if you can remember that day. I'm sure it sticks out like a flashbulb memory. No, you're absolutely wrong. Uh, this right. was not a aha moment. It wasn't, you know, Archimedes in the bathtub going, Eureka, I have found it. Uh, this was uh, like a lot of science where, you know, it was a high-pressure system at its highest. It was 1997, the year of the largest El Nino on record. And in order to reach our home port at 35 degrees north latitude, we, we deviated from what the sailors usually do, go up to 40 north and get the westerly winds. We had spare fuel and diesel engines. We weren't really a racing boat. We were a cruising catamaran. And so we decided to take a shortcut through this uh, area known as the doldrums. And it wasn't that I saw a patch of trash. That, that I say that in my book. What it was was that day after day, I couldn't come on deck without seeing something floating by. It got to be the feeling like I was following a trail of, you know, cookie crumbs like Hansel and Gretel or something. But I thought, you know, this is not somebody leading me home here, putting out these little shards of plastic so I can find my way home. This is not just a line of stuff. This must be associated with this larger phenomenon, this high-pressure system. So uh, there's no entry in the log saying I saw something all of a sudden. There, there, in fact, there's no mention of debris in the log whatsoever. We never saw anything big enough to note in the log. There was one glass ball floated by, and that was the only thing that anybody ever thought to put in the log. It wasn't a threat to navigation. It wasn't a lot of stuff. It was just a piece here and a piece there. So I was, it was like I got to the point where I would come out and I'd say, okay, I'm going to stand here for five minutes. I'm not going to see anything. I'm in the middle of the ocean. I shouldn't see anything. And I'd bet myself, you know, you're not going to see anything, but I'd always lose the bet. I'd always, before five minutes or so was up, I would have seen something floating by. So this disturbed me enough to go to a group of scientists I work with and ask their statistician, you know, to create a sample design so I could go out there and assess the quantity that was associated with this phenomenon, if indeed it was this high-pressure phenomenon. So in the sense of being a discoverer of the garbage patch, there is a certain legitimacy to that in the sense that I developed, I, I, had, I saw, made an observation, I made a series of observations, I developed a hypothesis that it was related to the high, because as a navigator, I was getting weather faxes and seeing this high-pressure system and how enormous it was. And then I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations and said, you know, if, it, if this amount of trash that I'm seeing, which is very small, it could, certainly no more than half a pound per uh, 100 uh, square meters, uh, if that amount that I'm seeing, even if it's a half a pound per hundred square meters, this is millions and millions of square kilometers out here. So uh, if you do a back-of-the-envelope calculation, it equals like the amount in the Puente Hills landfill, the largest landfill in the United States outside of Los Angeles. So I said, you know, I need to measure and see if, see what, if, if it's truly associated with this atmospheric phenomenon and its, and its extent is as large as this atmospheric phenomena, then we've got thousands and thousands of tons of trash out here. And uh, so we developed this random sample pattern, and I spoke to oceanographers about the best way to sample it and came up with this net use for ichthyoplankton called a manitrol. that samples the new stone layer, which is the surface of the ocean, and then went uh, back with a crew to actually do a scientific assessment of the debris there. And, and we started sampling when we got into this high-pressure cell, this center of the high, and uh, found six times as much plastic floating there as the zooplankton that we brought up in our trawls. And, and that, of course, that result didn't come immediately. 
But we were shocked by the amount of plastic we saw. Uh, everyone on the voyage was completely surprised by the quantities we were finding. We, we sampled 27,000 pieces of plastic on that trip, uh, towing this, this kind of a net. And each one of those was counted in our lab and identified by type, and, and then we counted the zooplankton as well and identified them uh, to class. So we compared the zooplankton, the animal plankton, to the plastic, which is the food there, and that comparison is really what set the scientific community on fire as a new science. And it's a shame that a new science was invented by us trashing the ocean, but that's exactly what has happened. So it wasn't like an aha moment that this kind of was over the course and then you realized the extent of what was going on. But this happened to you twice because just as recent as last year, you stumbled upon another patch um, in the South Pacific, right? Yeah, but we had already, uh, a colleague of mine had already uh, passed through it uh, doing the sampling and had identified uh, high levels uh, in the area that we went to. So uh, we worked with a modeler that they had worked with and, and uh, attempted to cross it and do a more thorough assessment of the amounts there, uh, which has yet to be published. But, yeah, um, it, it has some differences, uh, also some similarities to the North uh, Pacific Garbage Patch, the South Pacific Garbage Patch. But I like these places. These places, you know, I grew up camping in the desert, and the desert has a certain kind of purity, a certain kind of pristine nature to it. You know, it's it's depauperate. What we say, there's not a lot of species living in the desert, uh, which is one of the reasons why it feels kind of clean when you're camping in the desert. And and the ocean gyres are deserts out in the ocean, and they're warm and they're calm, and there's bright sun and not a lot of clouds, and not a lot of rain, and there's depauperate. There's not a lot of big species out there. We've never seen a big shark or rarely see a whale or a dolphin. Usually when they're migrating, we've seen humpbacks migrate through there, but uh, there's not a lot of big things hanging out there because there's not a lot of food there. So uh, it's an enjoyable place to be, it, it, and, and so I've become this person that likes to go there, that has the capability to go there, where they're so far from shore, so difficult to access. Most people don't spend any time there. If they're doing anything, they're just going and getting some samples and getting out of there. And I really consider myself a spokesperson for the environment itself there. It's a beautiful, desert-like ocean environment with 100-meter visibility. If it wasn't for all the trash, it would be a fantastic place to study these gelatinous invertebrates, these larvations and salps and all these incredible creatures that uh, are transparent but can grow to great size. Uh, this is where baby sea turtles go uh, to, to mature, to become juveniles. You, never, you don't see big sea turtles there, but you see small sea turtles in the garbage patch uh, because the small... Uh, amounts of food there are suitable for them to mature and the area and around the reefs uh, around the islands where they're born are walls of death for baby turtles there's all kind of fish ready to gobble them up so they immediately swim as far away from land as they can as soon as you see the baby turtles crawling down the beach and getting into the ocean but as soon as they hit that water they're jamming for the gyre and that's what makes it a fascinating place we've seen uh, slender mola juvenile groups there of fantastic, incredible fish. Uh, there's just uh, flying squid there. Squid will fly out of the water and jump up on the boat. Uh, there's flying fish as well, but uh, there's creatures that are probably yet to be discovered there, and we're trashing the place. We're totally changing the ecology. Uh, we're putting barnacles and polychaetes and crabs there that don't belong there, oysters, mussels, all these things that are growing on the trash are robbing the natives of their food. So I've become the spokesperson for the area outside the exclusive economic zone of any country, sort of an ambassador for nowhere. 
on the planet. So I'm the ambassador from nowhere. Please uh, accept my credentials and allow me to proceed to the uh, event. <laughs> well, you know, you clearly love the ocean, uh, and I think that that is required for this type of work. How did that start? How did you kind of develop this love affair? Well, with I grew up here on Alamitos Bay and uh, uh, started sailing at five years old, uh, Swim, learned to swim here. The Red Cross held swimming classes at the Colorado Lagoon that's just recently been rehabilitated and brought back to a good water quality, uh, and I, that's where I learned to swim. Uh, my father was a sailor, liked to go sailing uh, to destinations in Baja, California, so I learned to dive and provide dinner for the family, and uh, yeah, uh, I'm a marine mammal. Uh, uh, my mother was a friend of the uh, uh the person at school that assigned you your um, schedule, uh, the counselor, and they'd gone to school together. Uh, and so I said, look, I would like to have homeroom first period. So in case I'm a little late from sur coming in and surfing, that um, everything will be okay. And so, yeah, I was able to get homeroom first period. So I was able to surf so you were pretty politi politically connected early on. Yeah, we used the we used the political connections early on, and 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 in in order to uh, do more water stuff. And so, in third grade, in, in your book, you talk about you looked at pond water through a microscope. Um, how did that kind of change how you viewed the water itself? Well, I, my father was a scientist. Uh, you know, uh, he uh, was a. a president of a small chemical company that made uh, raw sulfur out of uh, excess refinery gases. You know, when you refine petroleum, you see a lot of the gases flared off, and a lot of that's a waste. And uh, his company took the, the gases that would have been burned off and made them into sulfur. Uh, and so I grew up in a chemical company. I've, uh, I'm not unfamiliar with uh, microscopes and test tubes and beakers and uh, Bunsen burners. And so I, um, you know, I, 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 it wasn't as if it was a great revelation to know that there was microscopic animals uh, in the, you know, in the, in the water. But, and even so, when you think about it, the density of life in the ocean is much less than the density of life on land. That's why people think, well, if we have biodegradable stuff, we'll just throw it in the ocean and the ocean will take care of it. But the ocean is cold. There's not a lot of bacteria per cubic centimeter like there is in, say, a compost pile. And so you don't get these high temperatures. A compost pile can get like 140 degrees Fahrenheit in the middle just from biological activity, which is enough to kill pneumococcus and streptococcus. You can't expect things that compost in a compost pile to be biodegradable in the ocean. So we have two standards. We have compostability, which is biodegradable on land. Then we have marine degradable, which is another concept. But the same standards apply. It has to be, you know, 50 to 60 percent of it has to go away within six months for it to be considered uh, marine degradable or biodegradable. And a lot of the things that are touted as solutions to the plastic pollution problem in terms of biodegradability are still going to be persistent plastics in the ocean and not going to biodegrade. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting that the plastics revolution, how that happened. Um, and I want to so I want to get back to that. But one more thing I want to talk about, because your background is really interesting to me. You joined an urban commune. Um, so you worked on printing presses. Uh, you, Gestetner, you, the Gestetner, yeah. Yeah, and so I did an episode on printing presses. We actually uh, went down to Carson to the museum and talked to people down there, and there was a, a guy who used printing, you know, letterpress for art. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. So you were a master of that, huh? Uh, I wouldn't say I was a master, but I, I did learn how to run the Gestetner machine, and we, we published uh, the... Um, couple of different organs uh, out of uh, Berkeley up on, uh, we were on Parker Street as our commune, uh, but there was other groups uh, from New York and other places that had migrated to Berkeley because it was a center of uh, radical activity, the free speech movement, Mario Savio, 
one of our uh, adult, if quote unquote, uh, gurus was a friend of Mario Savio's was published in that first book that came out about the free speech movement uh, that had, had written a nice essay, Brad Cleveland. And uh, he uh, was one of the people that, you know, helped us understand the situation there in Berkeley. But yeah, we were on the streets. We were baking bread out in Novato and another commune and distributing on the streets. We were uh, out there, you know, uh, protesting. I remember uh, we were, we were, we were, in a way, we were funny because um, it was the, the uh, Czechoslovakia had been invaded by the Soviet Union, and we were being invaded by, you know, the Alameda County Sheriff, so we were on the sidewalks yelling, we want Soviet troops, we want Soviet <laughs> troops, and it was like, so it's like, so I could just see like Trump being going like, yeah, yeah, please. Uh, we, we, he would probably, that would probably be a slogan he would dig, you know, we want Soviet troops. Right. <laughs> something to that. What is also funny about the commie time is you joined a cabinet co-op and even worked on Vin Scully's, um, grandfather clock. Yeah. Well, there, those are two separate things that, that I learned the trade at the carpenters and cabinet makers co-op in Santa Barbara. We got $5 a week and room and board and, uh, and that taught me the trade of uh, cabinet making. And then when I came back to Long Beach, I started my own shop. And when I was going to get my C6, which is the cabinet maker's license, so you can practice, you know, I was doing kitchen cabinets and stuff like that in the state of California. Um, I met a guy who had a daughter who had to leave Los Angeles because every time there was a smog alert, she had to go into an oxygen tent. They had asthma so bad oh, wow. that... He just, his daughter just couldn't live here. And he had a business doing freight damage furniture where he restored uh, furniture that was broken in transit. And it seemed like a good opportunity for me to get into a business. You know, uh, he needed to get out and he would train me. And so he trained me and I made good money and bought a truck and so just kept up with it. And I did that for 20, 25 years. Uh, and uh, had a company uh, garden uh, next to the next to the shop, uh, and we I would have company lunches and stuff that we grew there at the place. So I've been involved in urban ag actually longer than uh, in ocean research. Wow, because you had you had the first organic commercial organic garden in Long Beach, correct? Right. Yeah. Wow. So you're a pioneer in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I've sort of been seeing what has to be done in order to. Uh, make the changes that we need to do because we're not seeing a realization that we can't go any farther on the road we're on. It's like William McDonough says, if, you're, if your goal is to get to Canada and, and you're heading south, you can't get there by speeding up, you know, and that seems to be what we're doing. Our goal is to have freedom and justice and uh, equality for the world's people, and we can't get there by speeding up uh, wealth accumulation for those who already got it. You know, it, it just it's not going to work. So, uh, the way I saw to uh, kind of come in the side door was to become self-sufficient, to have sufficient mm. food for people, food, shelter, clothing, and energy. If you can. Get that happening on the local level, if you can get that happening amongst people who don't have resources. Those are resources that they need. That the, We can produce the basics right here in the city. And so I saw food as being, of course, primary. And then realizing, you know, when I couldn't surf because they were starting to post the beach with, you know, bacterial contamination signs, I go, well, this is a non-starter. You know, we can't continue to have a civilization that, uh, you know, soils its nest to the point where we can't use the nest. So uh, I realized the connection between uh, urban ag, softening the urban hardscape, mulching, percolation of polluted stormwater runoff, and the deterioration of the marine environment. So when I founded Algalita Marine Research and Education and Long Beach Organic, it was on the same day in 1994, and I went to the Secretary of State's office and put the money down to reserve those names. It was because of the Coast and Ocean Connection. That was our first fundraiser. We called it the Coast and Ocean Connection Celebration. And 
the idea was to, you know, if you treat the land organically and properly, then you can expect to have the ocean respond positively in terms of the kind of contamination that we were facing uh, in those times. So, yeah, um, I was uh, an early uh, advocate for uh, both uh, organic uh, urban agriculture and for uh, restoration of the marine environment. So when did when did the marine aspect come into it? So I mean, how do you go from working in cabinets to discovering the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Well, I'd always been a boater and I surfer, and like I said, uh, the only time I really stopped uh, boating was during college years and in the commune up in Berkeley. So uh, when we came back to Long Beach, uh, my friend and I we decided we wanted to get a little runabout and go to Catalina, you know, a 15-footer with an outboard. We called it the least turn. And we worked on that for a while. And then I uh, heard about a vessel uh, that could get me sailing again, a center cockpit Dawson 26 that uh, had a swing keel that I could beach and pull up the rudder. And um, Just in the interest of full disclosure, I don't know any of the words that you've said in the past five minutes. So I'm going to assume that they're sailing terms and boating terms, and people listening will know what you're talking about. You, you it sounds pretty you, impressive. You assume correctly. Okay, okay, great. Continue, please. Uh, so um, the, um, uh, the vessel uh, was a monohull, and you go to a lot of trouble with the monohull vessel to keep it upright when you're at anchor. You know, it's just really annoying to be trying to cook and rocking back and forth, and every boat that comes by, you rock back and forth. So you have these things called Mexican hats so you can put down little... Uh, kind of sombreros with a weight on them that kind of drag when they try the boat the boat dips down one way and it tries to come back the other way these things drag and keep the boat stable so you'll see a lot of fishing boats with a big spar out to the side and and a weight on it uh, that's to keep the boat stable uh, catamarans eliminate that need catamarans are stable and so when I got into the idea that we're going to have to do something about all this pollution in the ocean and we need to do more re marine research because I was, had been, you know, I went up through the chairs and became commander of the Long Beach Power Squadron. I taught basic seamanship and small boat handling to the general public. So, you know, I had renewed my, my bona fides as a, a mariner and was ready to sail. And I had this uh, monohull vessel and realized if I was going to do anything to improve the marine environment, I would need a vessel that had stability and uh, the characteristics needed to do marine research. And the reason why I wanted to do research because I found out through work in the nonprofit field, I just got involved in that in the 70s and 80s, uh, in uh, re restoring these wetlands so that we would have this kind of uh, remediation of stormwater runoff uh, that... It was science that drove legislation. Uh, policy makers search for the best possible science in order to make decisions. They don't always use it, and they distort it, and there's plenty of biostitutes and scientists for money that will tell, you, tell them anything they want to hear. But in general, if you can make a very good case using the very best science, for your position, you have a much better chance of getting a policy enacted that will actually improve uh, the environmental situation. And so uh, I was driven to science by the need for uh, the ability to affect policy decisions. And that's why I got into uh, the research field. And so your research vessel, um, it's actually insured by Lloyds of London, correct? Uh, it was insured by Lloyds of London until they got tired of paying claims on me. Uh, and uh, uh, we had uh, been dismasted uh, coming back from American Samoa, and we'd run aground near the Great Barrier Reef. So those two events, after we finally settled, we made a better boat out of her. Uh, we improved the, the hull and improved the rig. So from my point of view, the insurance was very handy. It came in good. But the way Lloyds of London works is... They have individual people that say, okay, I'll, I'll insure this boat. And, you know, if a boat's had a couple of claims, then you, it's hard to find an individual person that says, okay, I'll insure that boat. So I went with a different company after that. After, and, and you can't 
get a company to insure you during the race. So it was in between insurance companies that I did the race uh, to test the new mast that was, had broken off American Samoa. And, and after that is when, um, uh, after I finished the race and, and had made this discovery of the garbage patch, or at least theorized that I was in some weird kind of trash accumulation area, uh, and, and before I went back to study it, I then obtained more insurance. So I had a period between when Lloyd's dropped me and when I got my new insurance that allowed me to make this race uninsured and to, uh, and then, uh, to, uh, come back and begin, uh, work as a researcher. And, you know, now I'm insured by whoever, you know, I've just recently switched a carrier, but it was. It's not me doing it. It's the agent, the agent switch carrier. It's fascinating that at Lloyd's of London, you have to find an individual person to kind of sponsor you. That's a pretty fascinating business model. I had no idea. Yeah, Lloyd's is an interesting uh, group. <laughs> I love them. I think you can have anything insured with them. You can insure your, you know, your, I think there was a, a, I had a bowler on the show, and I think his right hand is insured by Lloyd's of London. I might be completely making that up. Um, and the fingerboarder, Tyler Rosenbauer, had his fingers insured by Lloyd's of London. Yeah. Uh, pretty uh, fascinating if, stuff. If the guy starts screwing up his finger or, or messes up his hand, then he'll have a hard time getting reinsured. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. We'll have to be looking for different work, too. Uh, so, so you got into this. Um, this is pretty fascinating. Stuff. The one thing I want to talk about is because there's lots of aspects of this. When we get to the garbage patch and even this whole circling aspect where everything's kind of collecting, um, you know, I want to talk about plastics because, you know, you've mentioned before that it's a unique time in history where we have non-biodegradable trash being accumulated into the oceans. Well, one of the interesting studies, there was this rubber ducky incident that happened in 1992 where all these rubber duckies were kind of... Uh, I think it was a it was a, a freight tra a freight carrier released them all into the ocean. I think they're still coming up on shores across the world, but this kind of led to the discovery of the swirls. How did that kind of work? Uh, actually, it wasn't leading to the discovery. Dr. Ebbesmeyer is the guy who wrote the book Floatsymmetrics. Floatsymmetrics is the study of things that float, and so Dr. Ebbesmeyer. I uh, had worked with a surface current modeler, James Ingram Jr., and James Ingram Jr. worked for NOAA, and basically what NOAA was interested in was where do all these baby fish go and baby salmon go and salmon eggs go and, you know, where basically if we're looking for food from the ocean, uh, where is food being made? And so... They would trawl these ichthyoplankton nets out there, these manatrawls, to find larval fish and fish eggs and just kind of see, you know, how things worked out in the ocean. And in order to understand the current flows and where these eggs were drifting to, because at a certain point, fish aren't active swimmers. In their early life, they're what would be known as ichthyoplankton, meaning they drift their fish, but they drift with the currents. So the modeler looked for where currents were making these fish resources drift. And James Ingram Jr. is the one who had the program OSCARS, Ocean Surface Current Model, OSCARS, that it was used to predict where these shoes would, would you know, finally reach shore. And in, in doing that kind of prediction, you can see that there's this place where things kind of hang out, and that was the, the garbage patch. So Ingram and Ebbesmeyer already kind of knew that there was a place out there before I discovered the actual stuff. Well, now, I didn't, know, I, w I, w I didn't know of his work when I made my theory, but then I started looking for... Well, our president at the time, Bill Wilson, had seen an article about him in the front page of the... Los Angeles Times, and he gave it to me and said, you know, we need to contact this guy. This guy studies the currents that, you know, make things move around in the ocean. And we, we were concerned about trash moving around in the ocean. So we contacted Ebbesmeyer and then got to working with him, and he, you know, he said, yeah, you, you, you're probably, because my concept was I'm going to find big stuff out here, so I'm going to make a, just like a, you know, a fishing net and, that would capture fish and go out and try to catch this stuff. And he says, no, what you want to look for, you're probably going to find a lot of little tiny bits of plastic. Because we, we uh, well, it's a long story. I don't know how much time you have in this podcast. 
the there was a a citizen in the area where uh, President Obama has his vacation residence, Kailua Beach, who had seen these microplastics washing up on the beach, and he took them to the Coast Guard. And we had been working with the Coast Guard because of discharges by the power plants of their cleaning plastics that they used to clean out the inside of their cooling water tubes. And so the Coast Guard didn't have any experts on, you know, plastics coming out in the ocean, so they called up me, and I called up uh, the citizen who had found these plastics, and I said, I want you to send them to me, and we'll take a look at them. Uh, and so he sent them to me, and I divided them in half. I said, half to Curtis Ebesmeyer and half we looked at, and, and Curtis uh, said, you know, these are probably spit out from that gyre, from this... Uh, uh, really, the the garbage patch hadn't become a current term then, but he he thinks that this this gyre would spit them out. He said, "You really need a smaller mesh net if you're going to go out there and trawl." And that's when we developed the manatrawl idea, the ichthyoplankton net, and went back out there. So yeah, it was a whole coming as as most things are when you have uh, uh, something significant happen. It's a coming together of a lot of different influences. Uh, to make something happen. Well, you mentioned microplastics, and I think this is really kind of the key to all of this because I think this is the part people don't really understand. So when you have plastic in the ocean, it will photodegrade, meaning the sun, the ultraviolet rays, they will degrade it. But as you mentioned before, bacteria, there aren't a lot of bacteria that are really working in the way that they would work in like a compost pile. So they're not breaking down this stuff at a rate that would be consistent with something on land. But they do break down but they don't break down completely. There are still things that exist, these microplastics, these small little bits of colored plastic that kind of, it's almost like a snow globe in a way, uh, if, I'm, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, in the ocean, we have all these little bits of plastic. Now tell me how this is dangerous as it pertains to the animals um, and how they get confused with this stuff. Most feeding that goes on in the ocean is not see it, taste it, eat it. Most feeding that goes on in the ocean is gelatinous web feeding, jellies and salps and things that have these long tentacles. Gelatinous web feeding. That sounds... Yeah. I like that. That's, yeah. That's, uh, that's a term. <laughs> uh, 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 it sure is. And uh, that method of feeding is to have contact with anything solid and bring it into your uh, digestive system. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, it's not, when you have things that are the right size and the right consistency, they're going to be consumed not because they taste like normal food or act like normal food, but because they fit into the system. Mm -hmm. So plastic, the very term plastic means infinitely moldable. And so when you have something that can be any color, any shape, any texture, it can mimic any food, and therefore it becomes part of the food web. And that's what's happening in the ocean. It's affecting everything from the smallest plankton to the largest whales. And it, doing so, it is providing no valuable calories, but it is providing deleterious substances, both those that leach from the plastic that was put in at time of manufacture, and those that um, ab are absorbed by the plastic during its travels in the ocean. The sea surface has what's called a microlayer, where things like mercury from power plants and uh, persistent organic pollutants from uh, car exhausts, they settle on this surface layer of the ocean. So these plastics floating on the surface are hydrophobic, lipophilic. They, they don't absorb water, but they absorb oil. They're oil-loving, lipophilic. And they absorb these oily pollutants and then transmit them to whatever consumes them in the food web. So not only are we basically starving the animals in the ocean by giving them a fake food that doesn't contain calories, we're also poisoning them by giving them uh, fake food that has pollutants on it. So it's a double whammy. Uh, of course, we haven't mentioned entanglement, 
but uh, things that are larger are getting tangled right and left in, in larger strips of plastic. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I think you're, the entanglement's kind of interesting because another thing that I didn't realize, uh, when you think about all this pollution, you think that, you know, it's the consumer, human beings, the average person. But in fact, most of the pollution is done with by commercial fishermen, large industries. There's ghost nets that are out there. Uh, I had no idea that these were hundreds of miles long, just still doing what they do, which is collecting fish and wildlife. Uh, and also being plastic, it's doing the same thing that plastic does out there. Yes, and you know, 50% of our seafood is not wild caught. It's aquaculture, it's farm seafood. And I did a paper for uh, the uh, Tulane Environmental Law Review on the pollution caused by the aquaculture industry and presented it at the World Aquaculture Conference in Montpellier, France. These people do not realize what a bad actor they are when it comes to plastic pollution. They are very bad actors. So the wild-caught fishery and the farmed fishery are both heavy contributors. Now, I wouldn't say that uh, they're the worst. Uh, it's just that the stuff that they use is persistent on purpose because it's made to withstand the marine environment. So we see a lot more of their stuff hanging around longer mm. out there. However, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, in the same sense that, you know, all the water washing over the streets creates an oil spill bigger than the Exxon Valdez every year, you've got, you know, all that plastic blowing and washing off the land into the ocean creating, you know, a very high percentage of what is going into the ocean. It's just not as persistent on the surface in such large objects, but it's certainly coating the bottom of the ocean, which is not a good thing, and it's in the midwater as well. Well, it's funny because, you know, I think in the book, at least, you mentioned that the number one contributor to ocean pollution is the U.S. Navy, uh, which is crazy to me, and also that it it wasn't illegal to dump in the ocean until 1988, I believe. Uh, these were both facts that I, I had no idea about. Uh, how was the Navy allowed to get away with that? Well, uh, you know, there's a really nice anecdote in uh, Captain Phillips' book, you know, the fellow that they did the movie on where the Somali pirates uh, came on board. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what actually happened, in, and I read his book, um, he was, you know, on the Somali, he, he, he offered himself up as a hostage, and so they took him on the, the uh, life raft of the vessel, which the Somali pilots commandeered, uh, some Somali pirates commandeered the life raft of the vessel. And so he was on that with some of the pirates. They, they were talked into tethering themselves to a Navy ship when the Navy finally arrived so that they could carry on uh, hostage negotiations. And uh, one night, while these negotiations were going on, they had radio contact with the Navy ship from the life raft. Uh, they heard a plop in the ocean, and another plop, and some dark shapes were seen to be floating out there. And the pirates got on uh, the radio and said, no action, no action, you know, you, they're basically threatening to kill Captain Phillips of the sea, Navy SEALs came after him, and the captain got, got on the radio and said, oh, don't worry, that was just our trash. <laughs> <laughs> they almost, you almost get people killed because the stuff's getting dumped in the ocean. Yeah, that was, that was an unusual way in which someone might have been killed by trash. <laughs> right, but highly, that's where the exception proves the rule, I guess. Um, so one of the other things you talk about, which I'd never heard of before, is a nurdle. Now, you know, in truth, these sound delicious. Nacho nurdles sounds like something that I would probably eat. But in truth, these are highly toxic, um, extremely dangerous things. Explain them to me. Well, uh, the term actually was invented by the Huntington Beach Junior Lifeguards, and I know this because their leader was my original crew on the 1999 voyage after we went out with scientific equipment. Uh, John Barth, and uh, he told me that as the kids waited to do their your routines for becoming lifeguards, they would sift through the sand and they found these little things. They didn't know what to call them, so kids came up with this brilliant name, Nurdles. And it turns out their pre-production pellets, everything made out of plastic starts its life as one of these plastic resin beads that are, you know, 
two to five millimeters in diameter. They're moved around the country with the same technology that moves salt or sugar or rice. Hmm. You suck them into a rail car and then suck them out. Uh, they go in one end and come out the other. And when they make and break these connections on the rail yards, a lot of them spill on the rail tracks, and then when it rains, they come down into mm. the ocean. And when they get into the ocean, they do that thing that I was talking about. They absorb these pollutants. So as they absorb the pollutants, they become more yellow in color. There are several reasons for that, but uh, basically with age, they become yellow. So I've been telling my audiences, uh, you know, because we used to call them surfer pills. Surfers would stick them in their mouth and suck on them i said look Ugh, uh you've heard yeah. about don't eat the yellow snow don't suck the yellow nurdles <laughs> well why would they suck yet why would they suck nurdles that's so bizarre they would just pluck them out of the ocean and uh, suck they're, them they're, they're a nice sucky little thing <laughs> there's i guess there are other options but um wow so so these things are so these things float around and they're little plastic pellets that just kind of exist forever i mean kind of right that... they they uh they get chewed around the edges. When I look at them under the microscope, they look like they've been chewed around the edges and they get smaller. Are they abraded? Everything uh, plastic breaks down, but not by biodegradation so much as by abrasion, photodegradation, and the hydraulic property, hydrolytic properties of seawater. So it kind of leaches stuff out of them. So they become brittle, become embrittled, and they break into smaller bits. And then there's a, any number of fish species that test them. They, you know, they chew on them. They grab them. And then that happens on the micro level as well as the macro level. So the, we see in the microscope, the edges all around these things sometimes look like they've had little bite marks taken out of them. It's very, very interesting. So, yes, uh, they are floating around in large quantities in the ocean. We find them in our surveys of our own beach here in Long Beach uh, at very high levels. So, yeah, it's certainly uh, still a major problem, although our research, and I'm very proud of this, uh, sponsored by the Water Quality Control Board of the State of California, resulted in a law signed by Governor Schwarzenegger at the time, a Republican governor, but the industry didn't fight it. They said it was our responsibility to keep those uh, nurdles on site on our factories, and we're not going to fight you. That's our personal responsibility problem. And we're not going to be nurdle litter bugs. But uh, they only developed a volunteer program, you know, uh, called Operation Clean Sweep. And we're still finding tons of them. And not everybody who discharges them gets fined. So there's a long way to go to clean up nurdles out of the marine environment. But at least uh, we were uh, uh, the seminal uh, force behind the first law making it illegal to discharge them. And these are, you know, this is another thing that's extremely toxic for the environment. There's birds that keep them in their sacks. There's, you know, fish who eat them. All, you know, there's a lot of ecological impact from these. Two other things that I found interesting that have such a high ecological impact are, number one, plastic bottle caps, uh, which I didn't know there were so many birds who eat these things basically to death, which was kind of crazy to me. And also big lighters, which in a sense makes sense because they're, they're extremely complex devices essentially that are completely disposable made up of you know toxic liquid as well as plastic and metal and flint and all this stuff but why are there so many big lighters in the ocean uh when plastic loses its utility especially smaller plastics uh they become uh a burden on the owner um uh, how many people do you know that search when they cut off the price tag off their garments, search for the other end of that T that holds the price tag on the garment? You know, you may pull off one end, but we find the other end floating out in the ocean. Hmm. Uh, anything that's lost its utility, whether it's a wrapper, you, you know, those sawtooth power bar wrappers you have to pull off one corner, that corner gets is floating by all the time. We find those everywhere. Uh, it's a nuisance to put stuff in your pocket that's small and carry it around and try to dispose of it properly. So the way that people deal with it is just to drop it. Uh, it's just an offensive thing once it no longer works. You, 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 you flick your bick, you flick your bick, it doesn't light, throw it down, 
doggone Bic won't light. So uh, there are studies from around the world of uh, people, uh, lighters from where they're from. There's a Japanese guy uh, that uh, has a really big collection of lighters and accepts lighters that people find from around the world and tries to track them down to their source. But truly, um, the disposable culture and lifestyle, uh, the things that are plastic replacements for formerly reusable objects, like the Zippo lighter, what you refilled it, you reused it. But now we have throwaways for formerly reusable objects, and those throwaways are a burden on the owner when they are no longer serviceable. Uh, they just you know, there's, I, I've advocated for trash compactors in cars because Caltrans tells us that the streets next to freeways have to be swept twice as much as other streets because people just pull off. They've got, you know, five meals of fast food, which is like, you know, being on the airplane. You pile, you've got more, it seems like you have more refuse after your meal than you do before you eat your meal. <laughs> right. So people just get disgusted with that. There's no place to put it in the modern car. And they just pull off the freeway and throw it, you know, open the door and throw it on the curb. So this is happening everywhere. Curbs are totally trashed everywhere. Uh, there are no receptacles large enough to hold all this plastic because it's a space hog. It takes up a huge amount of space. And uh, we're going to have everything, not just, I mean, I find umbrella handles because umbrellas are cheap. They get broken. I find toothbrushes. Uh, it, it's not just the things that we hear about, the straws and the bottles and the bottle caps. But the thing about the bottle cap is it's a different kind of plastic than the bottle, and it's not tethered to the bottle. And so when it gets lost, you know, the, that's really what we're consuming more of than anything else now is these bottles of things. And the caps are truly uh, separable from the bottle, and when they get into the ocean, they're just the right size for an albatross to pick up and feed to its chick. So chicks are dying with bellies full of bottle caps. It's very sad. And we've started a group, Save the Albatross Coalition, that has got legislation for tethering the cap to the bottle, which has been introduced into the California State Legislature, and we're hoping to get it out of committee soon in the next legislative session and require that these caps not come loose every time you open them up. I think that's, I mean, I think that's great. I mean, you're talking to an extraordinarily staunch environmentalist right across from you. And, I, I, you know, it, some of these things that I, that I read in the book were just so fascinating to me because they would never cross my mind to do. Um, and and it's, it, it's a lot of, you know, it's funny because in California and Los Angeles, you're not allowed to have single-use plastic bags anymore. And it is amazing how many people that will complain that they don't have plastic bags at the store, like they can't make do with paper or bringing another bag to the store. I mean, there's just such a sense of entitlement with all this stuff that we must have it. Um, and, and pharmacies can still give them out. Home Depot still sure, gives them out. Yeah. Lowe's still gives them out. Uh, we far from banned them completely. Uh, we're, we've just banned them at the supermarkets. Uh, right. There's a, we still got a long way to go to get. I mean, I'm finding them floating in the ocean still at an alarming rate. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, even I think in your book you even mentioned that there was um, a freighter that tipped over that just dumped a bunch of plastic bags into the ocean, and these look just like food. They look just like um, jellyfish and and the the these slimy tentacle eaters that you mentioned before, the web feeders, the slimy well, web I, feeders. I think it was a minke yeah. whale that died with sixty bags in its belly. That's insane. Yeah. I mean. You know, and you in in especially a lot of the big whales, they eat the smallest things. They eat the plankton that you're talking about, which are at the surface. Well, they take a mouthful of water, and you know, the mouthful of water has these power bar wrappers. I don't know, I'm doing any buzz marketing for them. I feel bad they're catching the brunt of the of the nutrition bar industry. But you know, the wrappers and all this stuff, they they get that stuff in their mouth when they're trying to filter out the plankton. It's devastating. Um, but I gla I'm glad you're doing what you do. You're doing some great work. And even bringing this to light has allowed other people. You know, there's a whole project called the Ocean Cleanup, uh, which is, you know, taking the information that you've, that you've been, the, the science that you've calculated and accumulated over the past couple decades, and they're creating ways in, to clean up this great garbage patch. Well, I've got a few remarks uh, to make about that, if you'll permit me. Sure, yeah. You're uh, the captain. This uh, apparatus is... Uh, polyethylene, it's plastic, it's sewer pipe. 
It's made out of sewer pipe with three inch walls, black polyethylene pipe. They're putting in like 125 tons of plastic into the ocean with, with a, even a small one of these units. And to get that much out, they'd have to leave it sitting out there a whole year. They want to put 60 of these things in. This is industrializing the ocean. It's really not necessary. The, the plastic appears in windrows. It appears in concentrated areas. And they're not having boats that process the plastic accumulate the plastic. They're having a passive system that has to be cleaned, has to be maintained. It's just throwing good money after bad after good money after bad. You've got to pay to make these things. They want people, they've, they've, social, you know, they've taken over social media with the idea that they're going to clean up the ocean, which is an absolute pipe dream. It's not going to happen with this uh, apparatus. They're going to, they're not going to get it. I mean, I just as soon let it fail on its own, which is going to happen sooner rather than later. But the way to, if you really want to go out there and start cleaning up some of this stuff out of the garbage patches, you need to do it with an apparatus that can straddle one of these windrows and have a trammel screen like a beach rake and bring the stuff up and process it right away because more than half of the weight of this stuff is going to be barnacles and it's going to stink to high heaven all this dead life that they're going to extract out of the ocean and put it on a barge it's going to be totally nasty it needs to be if anybody's going to do that kind of work it needs to be a high-tech vessel with the capability to remove the life that's living on the surface of these pieces of debris and then process it in such a way that can actually be used for something. They're just going to landfill it. So it's putting a bunch of plastic in the ocean to get a little bit of plastic out and landfill it. And if any storm comes along and breaks one of these things loose, they will have put more plastic in than they're ever going to take out. Oh, just by losing one of the devices. Just by losing one. And their, their goal is to put in 60 of them. Right. Well, now, how can people, if they, if they want it, because you're still doing research, you're still going out there, you know, you just discovered another patch. Um, how can people find out what you're doing and, and help out with this problem? Uh, go to algalita.org, A-L-G-A-L-I-T-A.org. Uh, you can check me out at captain-charles-more.org and support our work. We're doing a lot with refillables, reusables. We're, we're starting a little store at our office to get people to bring in their jars and refill them with soaps and uh, cleaners and, and that sort of thing. Uh, we have uh, reusable alternatives for throwaway items. But what's changed in our culture is we've had throwaways for reusables. Things that formerly were reusable now are throwaway. We're going back the other direction. We're going to make it reusables for things that we've been throwing away like razors you can have safety razors with blades that are made out of metal that you can recycle um, that's for a, a guy thing but uh, there's, well, there's girls who use razors too that the well the um, the women at Algolita give classes on feminine hygiene and uh, go through a whole litany of ways in which women can stop being Slaves to uh, the plastic monster. <laughs> it sounds uh, it sounds very specific. Um, so, are you you're on Facebook, social media? You're on. Uh, where can people find you there? Yeah, I'm uh, uh, Charles Moore on Facebook and uh, Instagram. I'm uh, something like. Captain Moore Algolita. I can't remember exactly what the Instagram is. Well, I'll find it. I'll keep. I'll put links to uh, on the web page of all this stuff. All you've been doing, uh, it's incredible work. Um, Captain Charles Moore, thank you so much for being on the show today. Okay. Well, I uh, hope that um, I was able to give you some good stuff for your audience. I think so. I think I think so. Hopefully, they're more educated. Um, switching to reusables, I think, is always something that is a plus. I'm in support. Um, so hopefully you guys will do that at home. And I want to thank you for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Go production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. 
The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos, with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you love this episode, you can check out the full archives on fascinatingnouns.com. You can listen to previous episodes, learn more about guests, and even follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And if you like this show, you're going to love my latest podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, where I talk to a team of experts, scientific experts, and we take a piece of pop culture technology, and we tell you exactly how to make that in real life. You can go to F triplegbt.com to listen more and if you like those episodes you're going to like everything that I do go to danieljglenn.com to find out everything and even sign up for the newsletter where you can learn about more about the backstage in this episode future episodes and all kinds of interesting additions and updates to previous episodes it's incredible check it out fascinatingnouns.com fgbt.com and danieljglenn.com thank you for listening and of transmission.